More than that, it appears to be uh, rather unabashed, earthy, and a tad comical at times uh, because the cultural images that it uses, and we're going to hear a couple of readings in a moment, are so distant. And the Song of Songs, as a book, is like an exotically dressed wedding guest at the great party that is the Bible. Uh, there she is, and she's sat next to grumpy old Ecclesiastes, uh, who can't really see anything good about anything, and then wide-eyed Isaiah next door, uh, and no one is quite sure who invited her or what she's doing at the wedding. Well, my role this evening is very gently uh, to introduce you to the Song of Songs and to see how you get along uh, with her. Uh, first of all, just a, a couple of questions, and then we're going to hear two fantastic readings. Uh, we, I do have to say, uh, finding readers for tonight was problematic, because uh, uh, there's quite a few people that didn't want or weren't that interested in doing the readings once they'd seen what was in the readings. Uh, so I kind of, before, we're going to get them up in a minute, but before we get them up, just a big round of applause for Graham and Rosie, who said yes. <laughs> fantastic. There we go. Uh, but we're going to get them, before they come up, um, a series of love songs is what the Song of Songs is. A song, it's called a Song of Songs. It, it is a series of love, love songs. I want you to, I, I know not all of you will have this at home, uh, but this is one of my favorites. This is Nat King Cole's Greatest Love Songs, Volume 2. Um, and it's, it's vinyl and everything. Uh, and um, it, it's just a collection of love songs. And it's really interesting how uh, the, 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 it kind of it charts, just you can see it, hear it through the titles, some of the different things about being in love. So it starts off with fascination, uh, which is all about, I guess, that sort of as you look at somebody and get to know them. Then you've got come closer to me, that invitation. Uh, then you've got uh, the fantastic uh, looking back, which I guess is a bit more about nostalgia. Uh, then you've got the touch of your lips. Uh, then you've got paradise. You know, there are different things, but they're all, all of these are songs about love, but they're looking at the different sides of love, the different aspects of love, and the Song of Songs is exactly uh, the same. So it's really easy for us to understand what it is. It's like a, an album of love songs. So the first thing to know about the Song of Songs is, so like a, you know, like if you go to a gospel, if you go to Mark's gospel, Mark's gospel starts at chapter 1, verse 1, and it finishes at chapter 16, verse 8, and it, and it tells a story. And Mark, who's telling the story, starts pretty much at the beginning, and he ends at the end. The Song of Songs is not like that. It is, it, it's, it's this. It's, it's an album of love songs. And so when you read it, don't think, oh, it starts at the beginning and it ends at the end. It just, it's just a cycle of songs, and they're not supposed to follow on one from the other. There are recurring themes and gifts. Uh, so you've got attraction, insecurity, fear, desire, fulfillment. And they're very careful. The album is actually really carefully grafted uh, so that the epicenter of the album is the couple's wedding night. So that kind of comes right in the middle of the album. Now, it's not only a series of love songs, but it's a series of love songs that were almost certainly sung and celebrated at weddings in Old Testament times. So a bit like this, you know, this was meant to be played either in a romantic restaurant or romantic night out or something like that. So the Song of Songs is designed to be sung at weddings. They're colorful, they're excitable, they're flamboyant, they're unabashed. They're, they're, they were written to be sung and not to be read. And they certainly weren't really written to be preached about, which is one of our problems tonight. 
This is a series of love songs sung at weddings dating back to the time of King Solomon, but not written by King Solomon. Uh, and nor are they really about King Solomon. He, he does appear a couple of times. And, and the reason I say that is this. Uh, the main theme of the Song of Songs is the, the exclusive, fierce, passionate, married love. You know, what happens when two people meet and they become friends and then they become soulmates and then finally they become lovers? Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the great, grand theme of the song. Now, Solomon, uh, that was not his strong point, if we're going to be honest. He knew much about fierce and married and exclusive love as either Peter Stringfellow or Hugh Hefner. Uh, he's openly taunted in chapter 8 uh, for having a vast harem as compared to the exclusive it's you and you only love of the young couple. Uh, and if you've got time, have a look at 1 Kings 11, verse 1 to 6, uh, where it tells us that by the end of his time, uh, King Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, uh, and they were the reason for his downfall, uh, because he was just a sex maniac and loved women so much, he thought, that he wanted a thousand of them. Uh, of course, uh, what that meant was that it led to his ruin. So King Solomon is not the guy to go to to find out what it means for a man and a woman to commit to each other and to celebrate fierce and exclusive love because he knew absolutely nothing about any of those things. Uh, so one question before we get Graham and Rosie up. Uh, some people would say, well, maybe the Song of Songs looks like a series of love songs, but it's actually about something else altogether. Well, it is true, uh, some both Jewish and Christian commentators have thought that the Song of Songs looks like love poetry, but it's actually about Israel and God, or about uh, the church and Jesus Christ. And there are other places in the Bible where similar things happen. So the book of Hosea, for instance, uh, the prophet is told, go and marry a prostitute, and he has to go and marry a prostitute, and then through the experience of the humiliation and betrayal uh, of uh, this sham marriage that is really difficult, and she ends up letting him down and betraying him, he learns something about God's pain for his people that walk away from him. And Paul, in, a, in Ephesians 5, uses the illustration of human marriage and says that human marriage reflects a deeper reality still at the love of Christ and the church. But in the Bible, when that happens, it always tells us in the text, this is what's happening. That what I'm doing now is I'm using a familiar picture from human life and I'm using it to teach about God. There's nothing internally within the Song of Songs that suggests that we're supposed to be treating it like a complicated puzzle that looks like it's about love and marriage, but really it's about prayer or about the Christian life. Uh, if you're interested in these things, um, there was a very famous uh, monastic writer called Bernard of Clairvaux, who I think wrote a 23-volume commentary on the Song of Songs. It's about this wide altogether, and it's exclusively about prayer absolutely beautiful uh, and it says some fantastic things about prayer but in my mind it has absolutely no connection with what the Song of Songs is, is actually about. Uh, we should also question why commentators are so uh, ready to adopt this view. Is it because they find the Song of Songs uh, sincere and unabashed 
sexuality embarrassing. Uh, and it does tend to get fairly uh, ridiculous if you take their view. So what is the Song of Songs? It's a lively series of love songs. It's most probably sung at weddings. It's not a story. It's a concept album that's about attraction and desire and insecurity and fulfillment. It's not all the Bible has to say about marriage or about sexuality or about sexual morality, but it's shocking that we ignore it and lock it away. So today we're going to look at some of the key themes of the book. We're going to hear our two readings. I'm going to ask Rosie to come first. In the Song of Songs, there are basically, basically three voices. Uh, there's her, there's him, and then there's a group of friends. And we're going to first hear a chunk of her, then we're going to hear a, a chunk of him. And what I'd like you to think about, because uh, I'm just going to ask you to discuss it very briefly with those around you after uh, Rosie's read it, is who would you nominate to sing this in today's culture? So if you could choose anybody to sing what Rosie's going to read, who would you choose? Rosie, over to you. So this is from Song of Songs, uh, chapter 5, verses 10 to 16. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. All immediately thought of Graham Simpson when we heard those. <laughs> Literally, it was like he was here in the room. <laughs> so that's, that's her describing him. Um, so just very quickly, maybe just turn to two or three people around you. If you could nominate someone to sing that, apart from Rosie. Uh, who would it be? Who would you like to hear singing that? Okay, oh, just stick a hand up, stick a hand up. And if you've got anything, who would you have to sing this? Any hands, any hands? Don't that. Yes, please, right at the back. Mariah Carey, do a fantastic job, absolutely right. Anyway, I'm not sure if she's available, but yes, 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 right here, yes. Eartha Kitt, oh yes, definitely. Anyone else? Matt, sorry? Prince. Prince. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, good. Cool. Okay, we're going to have the second reading. So now he is going to reply. And we're going to take a slightly different, in terms of what I like to think about, um, I like to think about should, should modern translations of the Bible do what we're going to hear, which is essentially keep all the images, uh, or should it try and translate and update them? So we're going to hear... And since so this is the New International Version, but it's very, it says it keeps all the words and images uh, from back then. So is that the right thing to do, to keep all those images, or should it try to update them? Let's hear uh, him describe her. Okay, so this is from Song of Songs, 
chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, which are there. Great. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your, your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like two fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Thank you, Graham. So he, he's really tough because she's got all of her teeth. That's kind of <laughs> what's going on there. Um, so, so just again, just with the people that you're with, should, has the NIV done the right thing, which essentially is, to, is to obviously to put it into English, but to keep all the images so your neck is like the Tower of David, your hair is like a flock of goats, or should, it try, should Bible translations try and update and modernize the language that was used originally? Over to you. Okay, um, let's we'll just have a quick vote so you can go either way. Um, if, you think, if you think the Bible should keep, keep those images, so keep the goats, keep the Tower of David, uh, put your hand up. If you think it should try and modernize or update those to something more understandable, put your hand up. Okay, more, more think we should stay where we are. Great, good, well, we'll see, see as we go on. What I'd like to do now, what I'd like to do now, is just to very quickly introduce you to some of the key themes that are going on in the book. Uh, remember, all I'm doing is introducing you to the book, and it, it may be that you just want to go away and read it or read about it, and if there are things, having read it, that you don't understand, then do please talk to someone on the team. So, the first thing that we see is the roller coaster of love. And now we all know that. Uh, we all know that falling in love is a roller coaster experience. Up and down, round and around, sunshine one minute, dark clouds the next. And it makes sense to me that these wedding songs reflect that experience. Uh, we have uh, attraction in uh, the song. You know, both him and her, in a sense, feeling that stirring of attraction towards someone. We have insecurity. Such a vital part, isn't it, of falling in love, that insecurity about, do they like me, don't they like me, I'm not nice enough, I'm not beautiful enough. We have that sense of the risk of commitment uh, about, if I, if I step out, if I entrust myself to another, uh, will that be thrown aside, or, or will it be wonderful? Uh, we have doubt, uh, which is often expressed in sort of dream sequences. We have desire, we have the decision to be exclusive, uh, these are wedding songs, and it's really important, I think, uh, for bride and groom, and everybody actually, to be reminded of the challenges and the risks that they have come through to get to their wedding day. Uh, and of course, it reminds them that there'll be more to come. It's not been a simple road to get to this point, and it's not going to be a simple road after this point. And so it's right in the, kind of, in, in the, in the joy of a wedding celebration 
that everyone's reminded that it's a bumpy road, love is, and there's probably more bumps to come. The second thing we see is, uh, and this is really explicit in the song, there is a time and a place uh, for love. Even a quick reading of the song reveals an enthusiastic and a colorful celebration of their lovemaking. It's playful, it's passionate, there's abandonment, there's frolicking, it's all delightful. But there's also a context, and context is everything. And we as men and women find it really easy to get this wrong. The song deliberately puts the couple's wedding night at the very center uh, both literally, it comes at the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, and in terms of the main themes. And the songs between the couple in chapter 4 chart the way that their love has moved from friendship, to begin with, to being soulmates, and only then uh, to being bride and groom. And he sums it up really well uh, in chapter 4, where he talks about her as my sister, my bride. That lovely uh, sequence of emotion that he has come first uh, to love her as one who is dear and close and, and then she becomes his bride and of course this follows what Genesis says uh, which and this is a verse from Genesis that Jesus himself quotes for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the joy of their lovemaking on their wedding night is a seal on their friendship, on the respect and joy that they've already learnt and grown into. And in chapter 8, they emphasize that this is an exclusive and a fierce love. It's a love until death and something that is beyond all wealth. And that's one of the moments that Solomon is mocked because for all of his wealth and all of his power and even all of his God-given wisdom, he never knew anything about what it means to be truly in love with another person. And so it's fitting that the Song of Songs includes a celebration of their virginity before their wedding night. They're not embarrassed about this, as we might be in our culture. They're not concerned that their lack of sexual experience will be a problem. They're not worried that they'll have to settle down to a life of sexual monotony. They're delighted and grateful that they can wait until the right time for the consummation of their love for each other. And therefore, they're able to enjoy it more deeply and more completely. Uh, you, of course, if you compare that uh, to the prevailing view, I guess in a film like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, but many others too, uh, you will see it's very different. And there's a refrain that comes several times in the song. And the refrain is this. It's like a, a, a kind of a chorus that repeats and echoes down through the Song of Songs. Do not arouse or waken love until it so desires. So do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Or we might translate that as until the right time. There's a dual recognition here, both at the bright flame with which God-given sexual passion burns, but so too the wisdom not to play with fire, not to, uh, to put ourselves in temptation's way, or not to use sex as a shortcut to intimacy. It's not supposed to be that. Sex is supposed to be a joyful recognition that you have become intimate rather than a shortcut to intimacy. The third thing we see is what lies at the heart of a marriage. 
at the heart of the Song of Songs. There is a young couple, and they're very much in love. Or what can we learn uh, from them? I think the first thing is the way they talk to each other, and we overheard a little bit. And of course, it's stylized, uh, and of course, it all seems a bit quaint with all these arms of alabaster and all that kind of stuff. But throughout the song, there's just this, this continual hubbub of conversation, of talking, of expressing, of praising, of thanking, of recognizing and rejoicing in each other's uniqueness. And it's a really vital component, of course, of all relationships, but particularly of one that is leading towards love and marriage. The second key component that we see in the Song of Songs is mutuality. I want to explore that as we finish. There are lots of things missing from the Song of Songs. It's a series of love songs to be sung at a wedding. It's not marriage guidance. There's no chronic tiredness brought on by years of sleepless nights caring for young children. And instead, this couple seem to have the energy to get up early and go and frolic in the fields. There's no lull in libido caused by hard work or age or exhaustion. Neither of them ever has a headache. She is certainly not lying back and thinking of England. Instead, we have a mutual delight and enthusiasm. But two things stand out. I think they're really important in our culture today. First, he waits for her enthusiastic invitation. He never forces himself on her. Yet, of course, many uh, men and women today uh, grow up with what feels like an amazing knowledge of sex. That would be completely different uh, even to my generation, let alone my dad's generation, let alone my grandfather's generation. And so many people now presume that we live in more enlightened times in terms of how sex and relationships work. We know stuff. We think we know stuff, at least. We do now have a generation who have learnt about sex from TV and online. That's been their tutor. And an online environment in which porn often promotes violence or encourages men to use and mistreat women sexually for their own ends. And so the tenderness and the gentleness and the patience of the young man in this song, as he waits tenderly for her invitation, and their delight together, is, to my mind, a far better guide for how to relate to others. And you wouldn't necessarily expect to find it in the Bible. Yet here it is in this beautiful, earthly series of songs. There's no, there's no violence, there's no presumption, there's no forcing anybody uh, to do anything. Now this week, the, the House of Commons is resounding to the derision uh, that one MP was watching porn on his phone. But of course, what it doesn't tell us is that we live in a culture that is saturated with pornography. 
and where the numbers of uh, women and men who are regularly uh, accessing pornography is just through the roof. Pornography is just a bunch of lies about sex. And all the people that I've spoken to who have found themselves wrapped up in pornography say that the thing that suffers first and foremost is their own sexual experience and fulfillment and enjoyment. Absolute irony that this thing that promises so much delivers so little. And I can see why people are really upset by what's happened uh, with an MP watching porn. Uh, but of course, we live in a culture that is really, really conflicted about this because in almost every other part of life, uh, porn is accepted and praised and celebrated as something that is rich and life-giving. And of course it isn't. It's life-denying and it strangles uh, real sex and real intimacy. And so I love the picture in the Song of Songs when there's so much tenderness and mutual admiration and gentleness and patience. And we know also uh, that she is unabashed in her desire for him and her thrill in him on all levels. And yet for too many seasons of history, uh, Christian women have been told either directly or tacitly to be passive and to be disinterested and to be ashamed of heartfelt uh, desire for the one they love. Uh, women have at times been told uh, that sex is about making babies or keeping the old man quiet. It's best done fast and with the lights out. Well, not so in the Song of Songs. King Solomon may have wanted subservient, undemanding trophy wives to notch up on his royal bedpost. But we discover in the song that real women find exclusive and committed and sacrificial love exciting. And real men, unlike party boys like Solomon, are thrilled to be the thrill of the one they love. Now this small and exotic book, uh, this collection of songs, deserves to be better known. It's not the whole story on marriage or sexual ethics. There's no betrayal here. There's no infidelity. There's no neglect. There's no getting old. There's no getting ill. There's no becoming predictable or set in your ways. There's nothing here about forgiveness, about coming back from uh, sexual failure or sexual mistreatment. In a, in a sense, the song sort of catapults us back to the Garden of Eden and says, this is how it should be. This is how it might be. This is how it could be. And we should still be able to celebrate all of those things. But of course we know that we live too in a world uh, where uh, sex is used to cheapen, sex is used to sell stuff, and uh, people are trafficked, uh, women are abused, women and men are mistreated sexually. And so it can be hard for us to hear the almost naive enthusiasm of the song or the song of songs because the world that we live in has damage and brokenness in it. 
but the song, the song still has validity because it, it paints uh, a picture that we can aspire to. And we too believe in a God of grace and a God of new beginnings where uh, failure and hurt are not the end of the story. Is the song exotic? Yes, it is. Is it disconcerting? Yes, it is. Is it outlandish? Absolutely. But we need these things. We need to be challenged. We need to be reminded. We need to be taught and unsettled. We need to be called back to Eden to see this brilliant thing that God intended in the gift of marriage. Otherwise, we're going to settle for second or third or fourth best. And otherwise... All people outside the church will hear about love, sex, and marriage from God's people is no, no, and no. When in fact, as we hear in the songs, and as we hear in the rest of the Bible, God's creation gift in marriage is a resounding yes. Otherwise, we will rob our young people of the joys which marriage can bring when it comes, or abandon them to the mindless drift of cheap and cheerless sexuality. I can think of a few times in history when the Song of Songs needs to be more known and read and admired. And maybe we can find a way to sing it. Now, that would be cool. Also, there have been a few times in human history when it's been easier to share the joy of these wonderful, silly love songs. So I'd love you as you go, this, go away this week, maybe read it. Remember, it's not a story. It's a series of love songs. It cycles around and around, uh, repeating the same themes. And as you read it and think about it, we'll think, how can we share uh, the enthusiasm and the love and the wonder of what is uh, going on here? And how can we share that, knowing that we ourselves live in a culture that is more broken on things sexual than many other cultures in history? There's more that has gone wrong. There's more that is twisted in our culture's understanding of love, sex, and marriage than almost any other culture there's ever been. So we're going to have to fight for what is right and for what is true and for what is beautiful. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for this beautiful song and for placing it in Scripture for us. And we celebrate the gift of love and sexual intimacy. We thank you for these good and beautiful gifts. Lord, we pray for those many parts of our own culture and world uh, where sex is used to cheapen, uh, to dirty, uh, to exclude used in power against people. Lord, we long that somehow we would help our culture rediscover the beauty and the tenderness that you have written in to the way our world is. And we want to pray too, Lord, for those who are here, those who are watching, People who are thinking right now, my experience of, of this stuff is so different from what I'm hearing and what I'm reading. We pray for those 
you have been hurt and let down and betrayed. Those who've suffered uh, violence and coercion, uh, betrayal. And Holy Spirit, we invite you, please come and bring healing and bring grace and bring new beginnings, we ask. We pray in Jesus' name.